back, everyone, to another episode of the Field Guide Podcast. I am your host, Nathan Druitz, your local extension educator for Stearns, Benton, and Morrison Counties. I cover Sully Crops. And with me, as always, is the guy who's probably kicking himself a little bit today because he came up north into central Minnesota, where it's a little colder than it is in southeast Minnesota. Mike Cruz, your local educator from Houston, Fillmore Counties. How are you doing today, Mike? Well, you know, it was a bit of a windy drive and it was a bit of a long drive, but I'm happy I'm here. Well, we're happy to have you. So, all right. Well, today's guest we have on with us today is Joe Bogarding. Uh, He is an organic farmer here near the Belgrade, Minnesota area. I've known him for a few years. He's, of course, uh, chair and president of our Dairy Advisory Committee. And and so this is a great opportunity to get a chance to get to talk to him about what he's doing here on farm. How are you doing today, Joe? Very good. Getting ready for spring. Well, that's good. How is that going? Great. Uh, spring is my favorite time of year. Things starting opening up, turning green. I've been out driving around, getting getting the fever. I like that because you know my brother lives down in Phoenix, Arizona, and I always give him crap about the fact that we actually get green up here and they're some version <laughs> of brown. So it's yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. So Joe, um, just kind of start you off here with what we like to do with our producers, um. Would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, about your operation? Well, I've been farming here uh, my whole life. My dad moved here in 1946. He came from the hills of Freeport and moved to the flatland of western Stearns County. Never quite got used to it. But I took over at a young age. I grew up with it. Uh, we learned to do drainage, tiling, and we, we've been able to improve the soil quite a bit. So eventually, uh, 1979, I bought the farm in 78, and I got married in 1979 to my wife, Tony. And uh, we've had six kids. We've got uh, two sons currently farming with us, and um, we have a daughter that lives in Belgrade. So we've got six grandkids scattered around here, and they, we get to see them all the time. And uh, that's really the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal for us as farmers is to keep our family together and working together and and um educating each other sure Um, yeah absolutely so you talked about starting when you were pretty young yeah you had your dad out here to begin with now you got two sons i'm assuming that the operation went through a number of changes can you just kind of talk about kind of where you started maybe with your dad and how it kind of transitioned into you and now with your sons involved i've started saying about every 10 years i turned my farm upside down we started out with an old stanchion barn cows on pasture which back then was just a pasture uh usually it was the ground that was too wet to actually farm so we put a fence around it and called it a pasture and i was disgusted with that so i by the time i was 18 or 19 i had pulled every fence post on the farm we're not doing any more of that we have controlled rations and controlled environment for cows that's the 20th century way to do it we built silos and we controlled all the feed we handled all the manure and then we went to a tie stall barn in 1976 i built the tie stall barn and then we had automated feeding and manure pump everything was mechanized and then um, by 19 um, eventually uh, within about 10 years we got frustrated with all the mechanization and the equipment and breakdowns and um we started doing um i built a freestall barn in 1994 went to a freestall with a milking parlor which brought in hired labor i always had uh, kind of sore knees i'd wrecked them when i was young 
a little too rough as a kid, <laughs> snowmobiling and everything. But uh, um, so we went to a freestyle, quite a drastic change. You know, that's that's a big change. And uh, learn how to do the freestyle uh, milking parlor management. And then uh, didn't take long. We were having stray voltage issues. Cows have sore feet and they need to get off that cement. So we opened up a little bit of pasture, <laughs> which I was totally <laughs> opposed to, but we needed to get them out of the barn for some fresh air and exercise. And uh, I mean, the air was good. But anyway, we uh, we started grazing. I forget what year, but um, after grazing a number of years and struggling with my crops, we then converted to uh, biological farming. Started learning to use calcium and sulfur instead of chemical fertilizers. And within just five years of dramatic improvements in our soils and feed quality, we went more and more into pasture, right? more and more into low input farming versus I was at a very high input prior to that. So we went into low input farming, biological farming, watching the soils improve, and uh, eventually said, you know what, if we actually could almost go organic because the weeds aren't as aggressive, the soil is working, the alfalfa is growing, the legumes are producing nitrogen again, which they didn't for a long time. The, the nodules are bigger than ever. Just looking at all those things, I decided if we're going to be Farming biologically, we might as well get paid for it and collect organic premiums, which would allow me to try more new things because we've got a little bit of cushion. Sure. And uh, and we didn't really want to grow the operation into 500 cows just because of our soil types. We're wet and gummy. You, you don't know when you're going to get your silage chopped and you know things aren't always timely on this heavy, flat soil. So we've, like I said, we've gone from stanchions to tie stalls to free stalls to our biological farming to organic farming. And now we are entering really deeply into regenerative farming. Hmm. And we want to see if we can't turn this farm into a, what it, what it, what it, what it could have been had it been properly drained by mother nature. So we've just recently purchased a tile plow so we can continue to put some air in the soil because the biology needs air and uh, that's what our soil is most lacking right. know, the, the anaerobic conditions lead to a lot of bad um, conditions in the soil and it, it affects our feed quality so we are um, yeah we've kind of gone full circle from yeah so we don't sit still you know things are always changing and uh, so that's that's given me quite a wide range of uh, viewpoints you know, I've, I've had to uh, Eat some crow sometimes <laughs> because I don't do it what I used to do, you know. Haven't we all? Yeah. So. so just as kind of like a base for where you guys are today, how many acres, how many cows? Well, we started out with 360 acres that I got from my dad. Yep. And then I bought another 40. And then we started renting some land when we increased our herd size to 180 cows. We went from 50 to 180. And then uh, so now we are uh, actually farming about 1,200 acres. 1,200. All organic. Yep. And yep. 200 of that is 240 acres of pasture, you know, 200 acres of uh, alfalfa and another 100 acres of, you know, grass and meadow. Mm -hmm. Some of the land we rent is uh, the land nobody else wants to rent. But I, <laughs> I I, always say I'm a slow learner and I like a challenge. So we're finding ways to generate some income from that. Sure. A lot of winter annuals and things like that take place on those soils. 
one of the one of the questions here, I guess, you know, something that maybe provide a little follow up here is, you know, everyone's got their own definition of things like regenerative farming and, and regenerative ag and biological farming. To you, what does that mean? Um, a lot of farmers and people in general would like to say they like to leave the wood pile bigger than it was when they found it, you know, as your goal. I always say my goal is to leave the wood pile bigger than it was when I started without diminishing its source. So that takes it to that next level. Right. If you don't diminish the source, that means it can be perpetual. It doesn't just mean you scrounged up more wood by borrowing it from the next generation. Right. We borrow too many things from the next generation in today's society. So as far as in general, yeah, soil health, biology, We've been, uh, two generations ago, they mechanized farming. You know, my dad's generation mechanized. He went, he grew up with horses not that long ago. But even with horses, you could destroy your soil oh, because sure. they would pull a plow. Yep. And if you had enough horses, you could destroy a lot of soil. We went to diesel, and now we can destroy a lot of soil faster. You know, I say mechanical tillage destroys the structure of your soil, where biology rebuilds the structure of the soil. So I have, I've got lots of horsepower on my farm, but I, I hesitate to use it for tillage. You know, harvesting silage, silage, you know, get things done on a timely basis, get the planting done. Just last uh, Sunday, I loaded up our four-wheel drive tractor. It's gone. We do not want to do that heavy tillage anymore. I bought a tractor I can use for drain tile and yeah. that's that's my big horsepower usage gotcha. um mother nature didn't distribute the soil evenly around the country and every farm has different soil different conditions and we need to get air in our soil we cannot we cannot farm regeneratively and anaerobically sure those two don't mix you have to be aerobic in the soil that's critical so if to, to maintain aerobic conditions is going to allow me to grow the biology that's going to structure the soil. And once the soil is properly structured, it'll absorb the rain and hold it. It really weatherproofs the soil. So now you've got the water held in the soil. My goal is to grow healthy crops that will use up the 20 to 25 inches of rainfall that we get. Right. I want to use it up vertically. But I cannot get there until I get the biology fixed to grow those crops. The bigger the crop, the more water it's going to use. Sure. My, I was nine years on a watershed board for the North Fork Crow River. We learned all about the movement of water. And we're in the Bonanza Valley. is just near us here. There's a couple hundred thousand irrigated acres. And uh, I said the biggest problem with our watershed is we shed too much water. Land is supposed to be porous. Sure. And it's supposed to hold water. If you destroy the structure and the organic matter, you won't hold water and you will not even drink the water. It will run off and create gullies and washouts and put the soil into the into the lakes. So if you can fix the soil structure, you will hold the water. And you don't have to turn on the irrigators two days after the rain. Yeah. That's my observation. of. So with all that background it, it 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 changes how i see my farm sure so you're at this point now like you said you guys are actively practicing 
your definition of regenerative ag. Yeah. Um, but you also talked about soils and we were talking before we started the podcast here a little bit about soils and you had indicated that a lot of the soils around here have kind of a clay pan underneath and it's hard to get the water to actually move through those systems. So if you can, can you touch on kind of maybe where your soil started on this farm and some of the different approaches you've taken uh, to managing your soils, be it regenerative ag, you know, changes in tillage. We had talked about a switch from a moldboard to a chisel plow. Uh, just kind of some of those approaches that you guys have taken. When I was young, started farming, driving tractor, we didn't have a square field on the farm. There was potholes everywhere. And they basically are sealed up tight, and they hold water. Yeah, you know they're 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 basins. They've developed a basin pan. So eventually, we did some ditching, drained out some of those potholes. We made a. Our fields were square eventually, and we did some drain tile, just enough to get that water out of them. Yeah, but they were tight, anaerobic, alkaline soil. Yep, and so to make that into productive farmland to grow good alfalfa, you you got to have air in the ground. Sure nodules cannot sit in water you know so we we started out fighting all the wet spots you know here's a wet spot there's you know drain it tile it ditch it rip it you know fix them wet spots my older brother dave i got to give him credit he came to work for me after he had got out of uh combining and and things come back and uh so he drove tractor for me and he was very observant and uh he says you know the reason our wet spots are so wet is because the water ran off the high spots so, that's an eye opener. What do we got to do to keep the water on the high spots? Well, you got to fix that soil structure. Right. And that's the ground that wasn't always anaerobic, but it is now because mm -hmm. we packed it, we compressed it, we we killed it. There's no worms. The tap roots weren't even going down. We had tap roots that would go down six inches and then turn sideways because of a, a little layer of chemicals and salts. Yeah, not the hard pan. Alfalfa will go through a hard pan. It yep. will not go through a layer of chemicals, which we were holding gotcha. for years. Yep. So we decided to keep the dry, the low spots from being so wet. We had to get the water to stay on the high spots. And I feel we've been very successful at doing that yeah. to a point where during 2019, when it was wet, during the dry years, we're proud of how well we can hold water. And it's to our benefit. The water that normally runs off in April or May mm -hmm. comes in real handy in August, unless it ran off. But in 2019, ours didn't run off. It soaked in, and we had the wettest fields around. So that was a hard lesson. We we have to learn. We have to be able to kind of manage it. Right. And with the price of uh, seed and soil, you have to manage it. Right. You, you can't just say, "Well, we'll take what we get." You know, that's <laughs> that's how we grew up. We take what we get. You know. <laughs> right. And uh, if you were going to average 100 bushels across the field, you had to have some part of the field had to do 150. Right. Because you knew some of it wasn't going to do 50. Now, that's not how you maintain a good average. You have to keep the 150 on the one end, but you got to get rid of the 50 bushel acres on the low end. Yep. So that's where I really am a believer in drain tile to create a big sponge to hold the water, filter the water, and meter it out over a course of a month instead of dumping it all in the day after the rain. So drain tile has been our friend, and yeah. uh, we had to invest in the in the drainage, and now we've got air in the soil, and uh, um, we're on the right track 
and we're now we're our nutrients are the other thing. We've been applying nutrients, purchased nutrients, lots of what they call ancient uh, carbon. You know, right. whether it's oil based or coal, you know, or you know, we need to regenerate our our carbon. So when they came out with these mechanized methods of farming, and it was just too easy to uh, till and retill and mm-hmm. till some more, and now I see the big quad tracks; they can till deeper and faster. And I just see every ten years they got to go add another two inches on the shank because the soil does not structure properly. And if if you beat it up and it rains, it's going to collapse. So you need to re re till it. If you can get the roots and um, and the, the fungi and the uh, the worms mm-hmm. doing their job, I don't have to be out there with heavy tillage. And then the less we disturb that soil with tillage, the less we need to. Right. The more you till it, the more you need to till it. So we are regenerating in the sense that if we structure our soils, and now I'm just, in, I've watched a lot of podcasts this winter, and um, the better your biology in the soil, the more active it becomes, the more it can break down and mineralize minerals that we were blessed with but never used. And things like phosphorus you put in the ground, typically you only get about 40 to 50% of the benefit of it before it's locked up. Right. So we've got years and years worth of phosphorus laying there that's never been utilized. It's like I'm too cheap to go buy more. If I can, if I can activate some of the stuff that we've bought in the past, yep. and you can only do that with fungi. I mean, that's the main tool is fungi. Yeah. The better you support your fungi population, the more free phosphorus you're going to get. The different rotations that you use, oats and buckwheat, as a cover crop, will release some of that fun, some of that phosphorus and bring it back to the surface. Right. Things like tillage radishes can bring back sulfur that's ten feet down. Sure. Bring it back to the surface, and when you can smell it, you know you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, those are the things. Again, going back to my frugal background, my dad taught us all how to straighten out a nail, so you could reuse it. That's the basics of how frugal we were when we grew up. Yeah. Nails, you know, buckets get reused. Everything gets reused. You don't throw things away. A piece of lumber, if it's two feet long, it's good for something. (laughs) Don't throw it away. So that, as I get older, I'm going more to utilizing those things that we've got available to us and not just keep stealing from the future, stealing from the next generation. Years ago, we grew up, in the 70s, they talked about peak oil. We're not far away from peak phosphorus in the world of hmm. fertilizer. The phosphorus, we know where it all is. We know where the easy stuff is. Eventually, phosphorus is going to get very expensive. Sure. If we can learn to utilize the phosphorus that we now have and don't let it wash off into the rivers and lakes, we don't need to buy phosphorus. So if, if you were to say... I mean, you've talked about a number of really good changes here. Uh, if you could give us a bulleted list, say top five. Yeah, let's do top five of the benefits that you have seen on this farm from improving your soil. Well, like I said, we can absorb rainwater. One night we soaked up 
three inches of rain overnight. So water absorption. Water absorption. And I drive around the neighborhood and I see fields that don't absorb. Right. And they're flooded. Yep. There's water running off everywhere. Night and day. Yep. That was one you, yep. you don't forget. Um, my cows eat my alfalfa now. So you have better, you have better forage quality. Better forage quality. They eat yep. their hay. Yep. They eat the TMR right down to the cement. Yep. Now we push it in and they eat it right down to the cement. Gotcha. We, we used to pick and sort. Uh, healthier animals. Healthier. Oh, yeah. Healthier yep. animals. Um, longer life. Mm-hmm. You know, health. Um, hmm, I didn't have a warning on this. Five things. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I just kind of came up with it on the fly. <laughs> I feel good about what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. So so we had water absorption, better forage quality, healthier animals, peace of mind. I don't think we yeah. can understate peace of mind. I know? manage my operation. I don't have somebody telling me, you need there to you spray go. on Tuesday by 10 o'clock, or you need to do this, and you need to do that. There you go. I am in control of what I, and I'm saying, if I want to spend the money or spend the time, it's my, and I, it's, it's amazing the feeling of satisfaction that comes from managing. It's called husbandry. It's called, uh, sure. you know, yeah. it's, it's not just buying this and applying that and, you know, I feel there's too much business in agriculture. Hmm. I I believe in practices instead sure. of products. Sure. If you learn a practice once, you can apply it every year. If you buy a product, you're buying it every year. Yeah. So practices can replace products. Yeah. Right. Um, Nathan, so, do you have any follow-up questions on the soils or anything that we've touched on so far? Not really. I mean, I just, you know, just to comment there, it sounds a lot like, you know, good agronomics yes. would be a better way of putting that, yeah. I think, you know, and, and I, and I think I, I would agree with that, you know, that, you know, when you start, when you start looking more towards practices, better agronomic practices, then you could start supplementing without products in a lot of cases and yeah. start working towards management of those problems, you know, and I, I think we see a lot of that, um, you know, it, it really comes to play with a lot of the university recommendations we started looking at. Yep. Uh, recommendations around uh, disease and insect control and, uh, you know, even weed management. You know, you look at the, a lot of the recommendations there coming from the university. A lot of that is, you know, we want you to use this practice first. We want you to focus on, you know, when you're looking at disease, well, focus on varietals. Focus on hybrids. What are you planting? Is the, what, if what you're planting is... Um, you know, is that geared towards the potential problems that you that you have in in you know in your fields and yeah absolutely you know, focusing on you know tillage do you need it don't you need it focusing on you know what are your weed problems uh, Tom Peters Doctor Peters you know he likes to say you know we need you know in terms of weed management we need to start thinking of all of our fields in terms of boutiques that no boutique shop is the same no field that you manage is the same and I think that's what it comes down to is. We have to start looking at our practices and, and focusing in on that. Yeah, it's, it's sure different when you're thinking about pulling tillage through the land I'm seeing out the window here versus the land that I drove away from this morning, which is quite a bit hillier, quite a bit a yep. lot more slope on it, right? Yep. Um, I'm, I'm going to shift gears here just a little bit here. Uh, so we talked about how your operations changed and the different approaches you took the soils. And so, Joe, I, I, I'm curious. It, it seems like you... You must be, I don't know, in love with learning. Is is that a nice way of saying it? You, you, you must have uh, been humbled a couple of times and must have taken an approach to learning that um, is probably worth talking about. Um, 
They say good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. I've learned a lot. <laughs> um, I do. I have a ongoing curiosity. And uh, I still read all the farm journals and the successful farming. I call that the stressful farming magazine. Yeah. <laughs> you got to do it faster. You got to do it quicker. You got to do it bigger. You, you, you just got to beat your neighbors. So I call that stressful farming. I like the idea. I don't need to milk so many cows. Mm. I like to tell my friends that have 600 or 800 cows. I says, you know, I got a brother that's got 50 and he's making a living. I'm not as good as he is. So I got 160. How come you got so many? Yeah. Yep. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is your approach to learning? Like how, how do you approach a task where maybe you don't have all of the knowledge base that you're hoping to have to get started? I mean, there's got to be a lot of faith that you'll be able to figure it out. There's got to be a lot of guts that it's going to be okay. I'm kind of curious how you get that process started. When I was young, I took apart a lot of my dad's tools, things like that. I just had to see what makes this work. Sure. And, you know, I needed to know how transmissions work. We had a hired man when I was eight years old. I tagged along. He explained to me how a transmission could reverse the direction of the wheels by how they put up the gears. And I was fascinated. And that was the beginning. And ever since then, I've, I take things apart. Even if it's broke, before I trash it, I need to take it apart. Sure. How did this work? And then I throw it away. And so I've always, I love iron. We, we, we do a lot of fixing and welding. And I liked a kid that um, when I was poor years ago, we didn't have any money. We'd go in the grove and we'd find some scrap iron and we'd make something out of it. But now that I've gotten a little beyond that, I can actually afford to buy brand new steel and we make scrap iron out of that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't always turn out. Right. But we learn something every time. Sure. We, and then the next project goes that much better. Everything, everything you just said, you know, I can hear dad in the back of my head going, don't take that. Don't do that. Why are you? Dad would say, you better get that back together. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you better, better, you better go back and get. Yeah, that that's probably more. It's probably more important there. You better go back together. Yeah. So, yeah. so do you feel like that approach, the approach that you took with the iron side of things, do you think that applies that you, you know, approach things out in the field, on the agronomic side, and even on the livestock side, on how you manage your animals? Do you think you take a similar approach? Yeah. We uh, we rented land. One of the first pieces of ground I rented hadn't had manure in 20 years. Right. It had been rented out to other people, and they kind of scrounged up the nutrients that were there. So my first year, I put uh, I had, I had soybeans the first year. They did terribly. Second year, we put corn. Yep. And uh, like I said, I was on the advisory board at the co-op. And I said, well, we're not going to skimp on the nitrogen. I said, those beans didn't look that good last year. You know, they, usually the recommendation, you set your yield goal, and then you take into account last year's crop. And if it was soybeans, you figure, well, you're going to get about a pound of nitrogen per bushel. Sure. I said, don't even count it. I said, yeah. those beans were not that good. So we're not going to skimp on the nitrogen. Yeah. Come the end of the summer with the corn, 
late summer, the corn's turning yellow. I said, what the heck's going on? Where's my nitrogen? You know, we had put in hydrus on like everybody else, yep. but my corn is yellow. We got a long ways to go. And uh, the agronomist comes out and pulls out the roots and says, well, maybe you should be using a rootworm control. And I said, well, this was soybeans last year. Well, them bugs are starting to harbor through and yep. you need to maybe use more. And I just, I'm not ready to spend that money. I said, I don't think there's enough roots here to feed a rootworm. Let's look at that. Yeah. So over time, reading books, one of the quotes in, the, I think it was Albrecht, says, corn doesn't grow good, doesn't use much calcium, but the roots grow best in the presence of calcium. Right. And that stuck with me. And I remember those short little roots. So we found a source of calcium that's uh, like fly ash. Yeah. The carbon's gone. Yeah. It's like soluble calcium fertilizer. We started applying that on this farm. We about doubled our alfalfa production. Right. The cows started eating their hay. The corn started to grow roots. Yep. So that was my approach. Yep. Instead of trying to fix it with another Band-Aid, I said, there should be more roots here to start with. Yeah. Basic so, general yeah. concept so of how I approach things. Yep. yep. So through a process, you you came to a solution that worked for you in, in your operation, but it didn't work out right away. It it took a little bit of time. That's yep. that's it seems to be kind of a common thing. We yeah. we talked with my dad quite a bit, and he talked about his. If the listeners of this podcast remember, talked about his sprayer. He talked about his uh, approach to no-till agriculture and how it took him like ten years you know, to kind of feel like he kind of had it under wraps. So, uh, yeah. Any, any follow-up questions well, and, on that? And, you know, I know you mentioned this earlier when we were talking, but you know, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on this. You know, uh, usually when you talk to most people, you know, calcium isn't an issue. Why would that be in this area of the world that calcium might be deficient? This is Lake George Township. We've got a lot of, uh, anaerobic soil and we have uh, a lot of magnesium so the calcium you could spread lime it's you might as well spread sand unless you have some acid yeah. you know and one of the biggest mistakes in agriculture is using ph as a test for calcium availability you assume the calcium is available because the ph is adequate but if it's a magnesium holding your ph up you could be totally short of calcium and nothing else works the calcium's not there. Right. Well, I believe that w that is all the time we have for now. If you'd like to learn more about crop production or livestock production, as always, you can go to z.umn.edu and look at the information there. And if you'd like to get a hold of your local educators, as although we don't have a AFNR educator in every county, there are quite a few counties with local educators, you can go to z.umn.edu backslash local educators and look for them there. Again, Joe, I'd like to thank you for joining us here today, and thanks for all your wisdom. Hope to see you guys next time.